Welcome back to WBAI and to Driving Forces, where we focus on the big issues in city, state, and national politics, the issues that matter to you. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, joined as always by my wonderful co-host, Les Katz-Marston, as today we look at the results of Tuesday's general election. Celeste, wonderful to be with you again today. Always a pleasure, Jeff. Glad to see that you are in one piece after a very busy week. Of, uh, lots of new political developments here. Excited to talk about those today. And I know you're going to hate me for saying this, but on air, I am wishing you officially a belated happy birthday to you and your husband. I've forgotten <laughs> to do that before. That is very sweet of you. Thank you very much. Another trip around the sun, as they say. So I appreciate the, uh, not, the well wishes. Not every day you turn 30. Exactly. Well, for me, it is. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot going on. I mean, I have been obsessed about the coverage this week, as always. I'm sure you as well, following not just what's going here on here in the city, but across the country, Celeste. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, well, certainly we were very interested in uh, what happened in the mayor's race here, council races, even some of those uh, ballot initiatives that we have talked about, all those things here on the program. But yeah, definitely was also watching that big race in the uh, the governor's contest in Virginia. Big deal there. Very big. Yeah. And, and in addition to that, right across the Hudson River in New Jersey, that was a nail biter as well. But in the end, uh, I believe this happened, what, late last night? Uh, it was confirmed or yesterday, late yesterday, it was confirmed that Governor Phil Murphy was reelected. You know, it seemed, uh, could go the other way, uh, shifting over to, uh, GOP control. There's a lot we have to talk about today. And I know we've got the guest on the line, but we just want to give, you know, just a brief recap of some of the things, uh, some of the takeaways. And we're going to ask our guests about this a little more extensively today. Uh, but some of the takeaways involved. A very poor turnout once again here in the city, Celeste. But this is this is not new, uh, correct? Yeah, I mean, we are just not really seeing a tidal wave of people showing up to vote in these contests. And I think that if you even think back to when uh, Bill de Blasio became mayor of New York, he was talking about having a mandate there. And we had, you know, not great turnout. It was not sort of a, a resounding, uh, you know, stampede of people showing up at the polls. We do have more than five million people registered to vote in the city. But, you know, how many of them are showing up? Uh, really not that, uh, frankly, really not that impressive. I'll go ahead and say it here on the air. Um, that becomes a big question. How do we get more people to turn out and vote? I, I know that a lot of the action in New York City, Jeff, has traditionally been seen in the primary stage of uh, mayor's race or uh, gubernatorial or something like that. But it, it is a good question. How do we get people to, to uh, stay with the process to the very end? Yeah, I mean, and when we talk about that paltry turnout, basically it was less than a quarter of registered voters in the city who turned out at the polls. And just from what I witnessed in my own neighborhood, now this was a race here, a city council race, where it seemed a foregone conclusion that this candidate was going to do well. And I think he took in about 60 or 68% of, uh, of the votes. 
Uh, but, you know, right behind him, you know, even though there were two others running, I think, socialist or independent, but the, the Republican candidate here in my district uh, did a little better than we had expected. And that's something that has happened in a number of races here in New York City, where there are only, I believe it was two city council members who are Republican. That might be increased significantly as far as the GOP party here in the city. There's even one race that still has not been called in Brooklyn uh, with a an incumbent Democrat who we we have had here on the show. Justin Brannon has not been called yet. Uh, he's confident, but they are within, I think, 100 or 200 votes uh, and going through that. But with that, Celeste, I, I'm uh, and I've already warned people on Twitter. I've had a lot of coffee today and I apologize. and <laughs> will try to slow down my conversation, but we're going to get to our first guest because she has just been fantastic. She's got great insight. I'm talking about Susan Del Percio. She's a well-known political strategist and crisis communications consultant, a columnist for Aussie Media, a political analyst who I'm sure you've seen on MSNBC. She makes frequent appearances on the network's various news programs, and she's got more than three decades of experience in the political, government, nonprofit, and private sector arenas. With that, I'm not even going to go into her bio anymore because I'm anxious to have her on to hear her insights. Susan, welcome back to Driving Forces. Oh, so great to be with you both. And a highly caffeinated Jeff. That's fantastic. I love it. <laughs> well, maybe for you, but not for my spouse. Um, so overall, what is your impression? You know, what were your main takeaways with Tuesday's election? I mean, turnout we've talked about, but here in New York City specifically, you know, what did you take away from that? Well, you, know, you talked about turnout, and I just find it so amazing. The conversation we have on a national level is all about how we have to protect people's voting rights. And we, we are so blasé about them here in one of the most democratic cities in, in the country. But that low turnout also left, leaves opportunities for surprises. And I think one of them is that there's going to be a lot, well, not a lot in perspective, but several more uh, Republicans on the New York City Council. Should they hit, I believe it, they're looking at six or seven now, seats, that becomes a block in p picking the speaker, actually. Like, that is an influential block. I remember way back many, many years ago when Fred Cirillo was a city council member and he was the minority leader of himself. There was He was the only one in the city council, only Republican. And over time, that number did eventually grow to seven, and that did make a difference. In New York City politics, again, having somewhat of a block that could be um, used, especially with the mayor's agenda. And I think it's going to be very interesting that we have a mayor who is not an ultra progressive and how he's going to have to work with a New York City council that has ultra progressives, but also now seven, potentially seven Republicans. But overall, the and, and what it's important to recognize is what got those set people elected, those Republicans, and what was turnout for them. And they got people on the, the you know, basically people who were tired of um, of COVID. It was basic COVID backlash, who weren't thrilled with what they were seeing at the national level. Um, you know, the economy is still a big issue, and now. They had a voice, they had a place to go let their voice be heard, and that was at the ballot box. So I think, as usual, the only thing that really comes out in, in elections are 
in New York tend to be angry voters. <laughs> Susan, it's so great to have you here on the program. Always good mm-hmm. to hear your voice. <laughs> Um, and I'm just wondering, I just want to stay on that for a minute, because I think that is a really big deal, the idea of a, a voting block of Republicans in the city council. I mean, I'm even thinking back, God, I mean, it must be like 10 years or, or maybe even less. But there was a situation where um, a voting, a very small voting block, I think of maybe four Republicans on the city council were able to engineer some really big changes at the New York City Board of Elections. Um, and this turned out to be a big deal, even though there were relatively few members of the council. Um, I think that it's important what you're talking about. You know, how is that going to influence um, what happens under a new administration, under a new mayor who is not um you know, as ultra progressive, maybe as some of the people that are going to be on the city council. Do you think that's going to change anything regarding, say, like vaccine mandates or, uh, you know, what do you think that's going to mean to people? Well, vaccine mandates is a very interesting thing, because as we know, Eric Adams was not thrilled about getting asked that question over and over and over um, in the days leading up to Election Day. Um, I, I And I do believe he would probably keep policy as it is. The question is, will he require it for schools? I don't know the answer to that. The other thing is, is while we tend to hear a lot about from progress, the progressive voices, we heard that because we had a very progressive mayor. We also have moderate Democrats in the city council. Not a whole lot of them, but those are the people who tend to create um, a block, if you will, with some Republicans. And they can help together push parts of the mayor's agenda that maybe he wouldn't normally be able to push with within the city council. I mean, we saw it in reverse with Peter Vallone back in the 90s with Rudy Giuliani. It was a Republican mayor who at the time I think had two or three members of the city council. But Peter Vallone came from a moderate district. He was a moderate speaker. Now, we probably won't see that kind of relationship again with the speaker, who will most likely be a progressive and the mayor. But I do think that there's a chance for conversations to be had and not necessarily an outflanking of, of who's who on the progressive side. And you know what's been interesting, Susan, over the last what forty-eight hours, uh, you know, I've been I've been following all of this coverage, and especially on a national level too. And I'm just curious about how what has happened, say, in Virginia or even in New Jersey, uh, given how close that race was. Uh, you know, are we seeing this at a local level? Do you think that there's been the perception, like, why we're seeing more? Uh, Republicans joining our city council, for example, uh, and also what took place in Nassau County, where we had a red wave, uh, based on the perceptions that the progressives are moving the party too far, the Democratic Party too far to the left. Well, there is that that case, certainly, that people can make that the progressives are not necessarily where the, the rest of even the, the independents or, or Democrats are right now. I saw a really interesting poll number that I think explains a lot. And it was in a recent NBC poll. And they asked it as a statistical question. But they said, if you, it asked if you had voted. If you had, this was the results. You voted for Donald Trump because of his policy, because of him, you liked him and his policy. 36%. You voted for Donald Trump because you did not like Joe Biden's policies. Just 6%. I voted for Joe Biden because I liked his policies, 
27% and voted for Joe Biden because I couldn't stand Donald Trump, my words, um, 20%. So that tells you 20, only 27% of the people out there really voted, you know, were, were there for Biden and his policies. So it's not surprising that there has been a backlash since I think Biden offered was told you can you know recreate the whole social safety net of this country and you could be you know FDR well people didn't elect him to be FDR they elected him to for, to to get back to normal and i think this where that reflects in new york city especially in the city council is frankly those are seats that republicans have held before so i think the most Republicans can kind of hope for in New York City is kind of what we once had and maybe holding on to them. But um, when you look at New Jersey, I think that was a special example because, frankly, I think Governor Murphy pretended he didn't have a race until the last minute. And his, his opponent hammered in an economic message. That resonated. And, it, and, and they used the governor's own words against him. If you don't, if you don't, if, if taxes you know, are, are your issue in business or, or your or your own personal taxes or your thing that you care about? New Jersey's not your state. Well, that's hitting home because right now with inflation the way it is, taxes, especially in New, New Jersey, no salt, you know, very little salt relief, state and local um, tax relief, which was taken, you know, eliminated mostly under President Trump. There's nothing that the Democrats have delivered. So you have this ultra-progressive agenda that's not being deliver- even being delivered. So they had nothing to run on. And staying on New Jersey, and if you're just joining us, we're speaking to Susan Del Percio. She's a uh, longtime uh, political strategist uh, and communications specialist uh, here on Driving Forces with us today. Susan, just staying on Jersey, aside from the governor's race, what do you make of that situation with the Senate? How does the leader get toppled by a truck driver who, as far as I know, has never held public office, spent like $200 on his campaign? And I think half of that was literally at Duncan donuts what is that about it's about not paying attention okay it's about not speaking to your district taking things for granted and we you know we've seen that a few times you know tom swazi lost the the you know mentioned nasa he lost uh the county exec race and had over a million dollars in his bank account um you look at joe crowley and aoc you know joe crowley pretended he didn't have a primary Mm-hmm. Now, granted, you have two other people who, other, in those cases, their opponents worked. Uh, but it is something that really longtime, powerful New Jersey leader done in with someone with no experience, no campaign, and 200 bucks in his pocket. It's shocking, but it shows neglect, and that's on him. It is also a reflection of turnout, though, and who was turning out. And those were people who were just fed up. And they said, out with them all. And then just uh, since we're, we're traveling a little further out of the city now, I just wanted to ask you real quick about Virginia. What was your take on what happened in Virginia? Some people are, are saying, well, Trump must be really happy about this. But do you think he really is considering it? Looked to me like Youngkin wasn't exactly like waving the Trump flag too hard in, in that contest. Oh, no, I think he was, you know, I think he burned the flag and put the ashes in a box and buried them. <laughs> um, there was, there is no magnifying. Um, 
it was it was very good campaigning on Youngkin's part. There were a few things that are important to remember, though. Youngkin didn't have a traditional primary. They had a convention and made him the guy, which, ironically, he beat out a big Trumpster. So that was a big deal. But when you have someone who can give their campaign $40 million, state parties tend to go with that person. <laughs> uh, and, and it was bad news for Donald Trump because he was irrelevant in that race. Even though, And that's what the important thing is, is that because Trump wasn't there and showing up, Terry McAuliffe tried to make Trump the boogeyman, but he wasn't there. And that's all he offered. Plus, again, going to Kennedy's own words used against them, when, they, when he said, and you know, he says it was taken out of context, whatever, but when the words come out of your mouth in a debate that parents have no role in their, in their children's education, you're toast. And, and so, he had no other message. That was the other thing. His message was, we need, we need the Democrats in Washington to do something. He tried to run against Washington, but that didn't work either. I, and I, you know, I know we try and nationalize these big races, but I do think there were just some fundamental flaws. Plus, there was history not on their side. You know, only once. Did Virginia go with the same party that was in the White House during a gubernatorial race? And ironically, that was with Terry McAuliffe in uh, 2013. Do you think they made a mistake running McAuliffe at all? Was that kind of like a brand new secondhand retread thing or? Oh, that I do think. I mean, he, but yet the voters decided overwhelmingly like that. It wasn't even a, a, a tight race. It was he, he ran away with the nomination. But I think that they got really kind of full of themselves to a bit, thinking they've got this. Virginia's blue. And not only is Virginia, did they lose that, they lost their House of Delegates, which is their lower chamber in, in state government. They lost that. They had won it, and it was a big deal when they had it. Now, the Democrats still have their state Senate, but that's, that's a big loss at, lo- at the local level. And that wasn't just all Donald Trump and, you know, and all these and Joe Biden, it was what was happening on the ground. So, Susan, I want to head up to Buffalo because for me, that was a big surprise given how much support uh, the Democratic candidate or the socialist, I want to get it right, socialist or Democratic candidate, India, uh, I never, I always I say India Walton had, and yet she lost resoundingly to Byron. Uh, Brown, the incumbent, but he he did a writing campaign, if I'm correct. Did that surprise you, those results? Were you expecting it to be a nail-biter? Um, yes, I definitely thought it would be close. But here's the thing. Brian was, he again was a candidate who didn't pay attention and lost the primary for no reason other than neglect. And he was able to go on the grassroots level he had an operation he had the political operation the democrat traditional democratic operation did not get behind her they got behind him and that made a big difference for byron it was it was the difference of being able to get stamps into everybody's hands and literally have them go and 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 write him in and it's it should, i thought it would be closer but when I think about all the local operatives and even operatives from around the state that went in to help them, that was a big deal. Because the, even at the st- within New York State, they did not want a self-described 
socialist, not a democratic socialist, a socialist. That's how she identifies. That scared a lot of Democrats. And then, Susan, I, I know we only have a few minutes left, but I would certainly be remiss if I did not ask you your thoughts on Vito Fisella. Vita Fisella, borough president of Staten Island, the big comeback. I know you and I have talked about, you know, Fisella years ago, years ago. And the fact that we're still talking about him today, what does that mean? Well, full disclosure, um, he was a client of mine back when he was a congressman. I was brought in to do some crisis work when he had some issues. I think that's Uh, when we we spoke about him probably most recently. (laughs) Well, yeah, actually, there was a lot there was a lot of talk of it being a challenge for him. He always wanted to run for re-election, but part of the challenge was is if he got the job, he still would have those ethics complaints hanging over his head. So, moving to you know, you know, going on to a Staten Island race is not a reach for a Republican. Um, and again, I, he's a candidate who put very little effort into running for office, but his name was well known and. Um, yeah, he was able to do it. But I, can I just throw one other race in? And I just want to, I know we're tight for time, but I just yeah. want to mention Syracuse, sure. the mayor of Syracuse, Mayor Walsh, who won re-election as an independent with 61% of the vote. He won four years ago with 53, and he does come from a well-known Republican family. But Syracuse is a Democratic city. And the fact that he won back-to-back as an independent, running against a Democrat and an independent, who combined got less than 40% of the vote, I think that's also an interesting thing to look at in New York politics as a whole, because there is a movement, you know, it may take a decade, but it's there for independent candidates. And Susan, one more question before we're going to have to wrap up. You know, a year from now, now we will have you back between now and then, but a year from now when we have you back on to talk about our governor-elect de Blasio, um, will that will that be the discussion you think we're going to have? Not even close. (laughs) Um, I know he's putting together an exploratory committee. My guess is he actually does not end up doing a real run. I think he needs to look like he was about to do something. Let's not forget, even the people who voted for de Blasio didn't like de Blasio. And even now, today, his friends don't even like him. No one, I mean, he has no constituency. So he is going to use this as a vehicle for some time. But in New York, the primary is in June now. So there's going to be a lot of action very fast. So, Susan, I'm sorry we didn't have time for you to tell us how you really feel about Bill de Blasio today. But <laughs> if uh, if people want to find out more about you, your work, your commentary for MSNBC, where should they look for you? Well, the best place is, is actually on Twitter. And my handle is at Del Percio S. At Del Percio S on Twitter. Susan Del Percio, always a pleasure, genuinely. And Jeff is right. We will have you back well before that governor's race. But thanks for joining us here today on BAI. Thanks so much for having me. It's so great to speak to the two of you. I miss you guys. Same here. Same here. You're listening to Driving Forces here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here as always with the lovely and talented Jeff Simmons. I'm really glad you asked that about Vito Fisella because I don't know I if had a lot to. of people... I had to. Do you know how much oh. time I spent covering Vito no. Fisella? 
a lot. But it was also, but it was also, I mean, and I know the Democratic can, candidate well, Mark Murphy, you know, and I, I was really surprised. You know, I, I tend to think that the baggage that a lot of people have in the past will influence voters. But you remember, he's succeeding a Republican in that, in that seat. It has been Republican held, right, for, for quite some time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm just trying to think. Well, when I first, I mean, um, when I first started covering Staten Island, who was the borough president? Um, was it Molinero or was it Guy Molinero? It, it was one or the other. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, we've had uh, uh, Jimmy Otto for a while now. But yeah, you know, covering Staten Island politics is very unique. The advance certainly has plenty to write about. But yeah, the Fasella incident was very serious. I mean, the guy had a secret second family has. Uh, well, I, I don't know. I guess if he still has a second family, it's no longer a secret. Um, but, you know, Staten Island has, uh, you know, a very unique political culture. I'm not attacking Staten Island. I've been to Staten Island. I like it. But it is very distinct, I think, among the boroughs. And I do want to note, and if you said this, I apologize for repeating it, but what I did note that uh, Vito Vassella did in his acceptance speech that night was to thank our great President Trump, uh, you know, which was, uh, I guess, playing to the voters who supported him in that. I do want to bring up one other thing uh, about the incoming council, and we'll talk about this with our next guest in just a little while. Um, but this council is going to be so much more diverse than ever before. Remember, there's 51 members of them. 35 had faced term limits, so they couldn't seek re-election. But we're seeing a lot of first-time candidates who are now going to be taking office and more women than ever before in the council's history. It's expected, unless things change right now, there'll be 31 women, which is more than double the current wow. council class of women leaders, Celeste. What has taken so long, Jeff? That is always my question. I mean, if you look at uh, Boston, Boston um, had Mayor Marty Walsh, uh, who went on to become uh, Joe Biden's Secretary of Labor, uh, was replaced by Kim Janey, uh, not elected, but replacing, uh, you know, temporarily until there could uh, be an election for a mayor, just elected uh, Michelle Wu, uh, Boston's first female mayor, first uh, Asian-American mayor, uh, Lots of big cities, if you look around, uh, have female mayors. Atlanta, uh, you know, Chicago, lots of places. Washington, D.C. Okay, where is New York on this? Just have to ask that question. We'll keep asking that question. Where and, is New York and, on this? And coming up soon, Boston. Yeah, right. Exactly. So, uh, you know, Boston, Michelle Wu coming in, as we as we mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, uh Look, people people have a choice here, and they uh, certainly had a lot of people to choose from. Uh, and I'm not saying that gender by any means should be the only qualification or ever is the only qualification. But it, it does remain interesting to me uh, that uh, that this just has not happened in a city as uh, large and progressive uh, populous as New York. So we're going to take a break in just a few moments. I did want to take one moment and thank you again for tuning in to Driving Forces here on WBAI 99.5 FM here in New York. If you are a new listener, if you are a longtime listener, if WBAI means something to you, just take a moment. I, we do this every week because it really matters to us, and I hope it matters to you, that your contributions sustain us. They keep us going because we've been around for more than six decades. We want to be around for another six or more. So the number that you can call to contribute to WBAI, remember, we're not commercial. We're not corporate. 
212-209-2950. Again, that's 212-209-2950. And every gift helps keep free speech radio alive, especially when we need it most. So keep on listening. And we will keep on fighting to keep public radio alive. And with that, we're going to take a short break and leave you with just a little musical interlude, Rachel Platten's Fight Song. Like a small boat on the ocean, sending big waves into motion, like how a single Driving Forces here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here as always with Jeff Simmons. We will be taking your calls soon. So please make sure you have our listener number. Get ready. 212-209-2877. Want to hear all your thoughts about the latest contest for mayor, for governor, for uh, lots of different offices uh, here in the city and beyond. But first, to talk about some of these contests and what we can take away from them, we have Aaron Durkin, somebody that I've worked with at the Daily News in the past, somebody whose reporting I really admire. She's now a reporter for Politico New York, and she's the uh, the co-author of New York Playbook. Uh, before that, as I mentioned, she wrote for The Guardian and for The Daily News, covered the de Blasio and Bloomberg administrations and the city council. She's also reported on urban development and local politics in Brooklyn. So Aaron Durkin, welcome to WBAI. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So just to start off, I'm curious to know, did you have uh, any surprises on Tuesday night? Anything that you weren't expecting to go quite the way it did? You know, um, obviously the mayor's race, we all kind of assumed uh, the outcome was going to be Eric Adams was going to win by a large margin, and he did. One of the things that I found interesting was actually some of the city council races. I was covering some of the competitive races, and those really tilted very heavily uh, Republican. Um, Some of them are still undecided, um, but it's looking like the Republicans are going to have a minimum of, of four seats, which is a pickup of one. And it could go up as high as seven with some of the undecided races. Now, obviously, that's still a very, very small minority in the scheme of the city council. But just in terms of electoral trends, that was something that was kind of striking and surprising in, in you know, certain local districts around the city. 
And uh, welcome to the show, Aaron. It's great to have you back on. There's something that Susan Del Percio said in the last segment about when, you know, especially when we have certain low turnouts, the people who are turning out are the, quote, angry voters. Is that your sense? Were they angry about something or certain things? Like what what was your sense of what brought people to the polls here in the city? Yeah, you know, I think they were certainly motivated voters and, and anger is a is an important motivator. It's not the only one, but it's a big one. Um, you know, I happen to be out interviewing voters in, in my neighborhood in, in Jackson Heights, which is very uh, Democratic, liberal neighborhood. And two of the first three people that I uh, stopped just happened to be uh, city workers who said, I'm coming out to vote and I'm voting either Republican or conservative because I'm upset about this vaccine mandate. That was their number one motivator. Um, you know, so again, obviously that's not a majority, um, but it is something that, that motivates a lot of people. And when you do have a low turnout election, you know, I crunched some of the numbers today. It's looking like uh, 22% uh, maybe at the high end uh, might, will be the turnout. Um, and when you have a minority turnout like that, then yes, anger can be an important factor. And Aaron, you wrote uh, a piece for Politico about five things to watch on Election Day. So we wanted to kind of circle back on some of those things and see, you know, uh, what we actually uh, what we actually found out or what we could actually take away. One of the things you mentioned was the margin of victory, uh, comparing the margin of victory uh, in the Adam Sliwer race to uh, the last time uh, de Blasio versus Joe Loda. So what did we learn from that or what, what do we know so far? I mean, the margin of victory is actually smaller. Um, it's still very, very, very big. Uh, it is almost 40 points in the um, uh, Adams-Lewa election, uh, but it was almost 50 points when uh, de Blasio defeated Joe Loda. Um, you know, there are a lot of different reasons for that. I guess you could call it a little bit of a surprise in the sense that, um, you know, at least among sort of the, the political class, political professionals, Loda was taken a bit more seriously. He had more experience in government. And Curtis Lewa was frankly dismissed by a lot of people, including his opponent, um, as sort of this colorful character, but not necessarily a candidate who was considered viable. Um, so, you know, he actually did better than Joe Loda did. It was still a, it was still a blowout. He still lost in the landslide, but um, the margin was a bit smaller this time around. Which is which is interesting. I want to stay on that for one second. So uh, Adams has a smaller margin of victory over Sliwa than de Blasio did over Loda. We still have relatively low turnout. I mean, yeah, it's you know, it's a a large margin in general. But, you know, we're looking at some relatively small numbers compared to what could have happened, how big the margin could have been, how many people showed up. I know I remember very well that de Blasio took a lot of heat when he got elected for saying that he had a mandate. And I'm just wondering if you foresee the same kinds of things, you know, Adam saying that he has a mandate, that people have spoken and, and people kind of rolling their eyes at that at all. What do you think happens there? I mean, I, I do foresee him saying that in the sense that, you know, he already, even after just winning the primary, kind of came out and said, oh, I'm the new face of the Democratic Party. And, and that was a very narrow victory race. in that primary, too. Very right? narrowly, yeah. You know, he, he was in a very close race with Catherine Garcia. Um, so I think he'll certainly say that. You know, how much does it mean, you know, just the fact of him saying that? I think uh, new mayor kind of gets benefit of the doubt for a short period of time. Um, but we'll see how long that actually lasts. You know, he'll have um, on the city council, both on his left and on his right, um, 
some people who will who will kind of be eager to get through the honeymoon phase and get to the point where they can challenge him. Um, and what does the mandate really mean, right? It means, you know, it, it means what you can do with it. So, and, you know, he also kind of hasn't entirely made clear what he wants to do with it. Um, you know, when de Blasio came into office, he had a couple of very clear priorities, the pre-K program being one, um, which he achieved, although not in the way he wanted to. Uh, he wanted to raise taxes on the rich to do it, and it, it didn't turn out that way. But he did get pre-K in place. You know, a couple pieces of key legislation he wanted to pass. Um, and those things all happened, and they happened pretty quickly, you know, and then sort of the criticism was his mayoralty kind of lost steam after that. Uh, with Adams, you know, his, his key priorities have been public safety. He wants to bring crime down. But um, as far as, you know, a key policy that might be controversial or as far as what he's going to be trying to push through in his first few months, that hasn't really been entirely clear. And you're raising some great points. You know, there was this quote earlier this week that I had seen in, in a, uh, another publication by Senator Jabari Brisbane, in which he had said, there's a battle of narratives in New York. New York is in the midst of finding itself. What's your view on that? I think that's probably true. And I think that's something that, you know, is always going to be fluid. Um, Obviously, in the primary, we had some pretty different, you know, types of Democrats and pretty different visions that were put to the test, um, you know, statewide, um, that the mayor's race here wasn't really competitive. But if you look at the race in Buffalo, that was sort of a litmus test of, you know, a far left candidate versus a kind of establishment, moderate Democratic candidate Um you know, one of whom won in the primary and then the other ended up uh, winning, um, uh, you know, through a write-in campaign in the general election. So there's always kind of that push and pull, and there's always kind of the idea that, you know, if one side overreaches, then there's a bit of a correction in the other direction. Um, so I think that's kind of a, an, an ongoing uh, process that, that probably is never really going to be resolved. We're talking to Aaron Durkin of Politico New York here about what lessons we can take away from the uh, the most recent election uh, on a number of different levels. And, and Aaron, I know that you have so much experience covering the city council and talking about these sort of gradations in in political affiliation and where people are sort of on the the rainbow of uh, left to right here. Just wondering what you see in store for uh, next speaker's race. How do you think that's going to shake out compared maybe to, to those that you've covered in the past? Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things I've learned is you don't want to make too many guesses because they're uh, usually <laughs> wrong. Uh, but, um, you know... Did you learn that from I me? Think, <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course. Yeah. Um, I think it'll be an interesting one in the sense of, you know, as I mentioned, okay, so there might be a larger Republican block. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also going to be a very large progressive block. There's going to be a bunch, you know, a huge number of new legislators because most of the council was term limited out. So you've got, you know, a, a large majority of, of freshmen coming in. You've got a div very diverse class on the Democratic side. Um, you know, so basically you're going to have a larger block on the left and you're going to have a larger block on the right. Um, and then, you know, the question is sort of where do you find the middle? You know, you've got Carolina Rivera, who is kind of the candidate of um, progressives. At this point, um, you know, Justin Brennan, who is considered a, a significant candidate, he is still battling for his own reelection. He's actually 
losing by a small margin um, to his Republican challenger, although there are enough absentee ballots that that one could really go either way. Um, you know, and then you have some other candidates, Keith Powers, Diana Ayala, Francisco Moya, have all talked about getting into that race. Um, and then, you know, another big question will be where does Eric Adams uh, come in? You know, when de Blasio became mayor, he uh, exerted a lot of influence um, to the benefit of Melissa Mark Viverito, who won that speaker's race, um, at least in part because of because of his influence. Uh, so, you know, who is Eric Adams going to want? And to what extent is the new council going to listen to him um, will be some some significant questions. And Aaron, I know we only have a few moments left. Uh, you know, we asked Susan Del Percio about this as well. And I'm really curious because obviously, you know, we're now going to be shifting to the midterm elections. We're going to be shifting to the governor's race here in New York State. You know, we've mentioned uh, one potential candidate, Bill de Blasio. You've got Kathy Hochul, uh, you know, Tish James, Jumani Williams. You know, what are you hearing? And, you know, this is obviously going to be something you'll be covering intimately over the next uh, year. Year, or Susan pointed out the primary being in June next year. You know, what are you hearing? What's your sense of how this plays out? Yeah, I mean, look, that's going to be an interesting one, particularly if all of those people ultimately go through with campaigns and jump in. I mean, I think the conventional wisdom would be that having, you know, all of those big names coming out of the city, coming out of the at least somewhat more progressive wing of the party uh, would work to Kathy Hochul's benefit because, you know, they would split the vote. Um, and she being the incumbent um, and being the one who's who's kind of better than other parts of the state could benefit from that. It is possible that some of those candidates will make that calculation and not ultimately end up running. You know, it's possible there will be a push of everyone should get behind Tish James because she has the best chance of, of defeating Kathy Hochul. Um, but, you know, a lot of things could happen. Uh, Congressman uh, Tom Swosey was uh, out today saying he's seriously considering running and he kind of would be more in the moderate lane, you know, he, as he was saying that he was seriously considering it, you know, took some shots at the left wing of the party, you know, saying that they're out of touch and they're not uh, viable, you know, and that yesterday's, I mean, uh, this week's election was evidence of that. Um, so if he gets in, that could kind of shift, you know, where everyone is standing in that race. Um, so, yeah, I think it'll, I think it'll be interesting to see how it, uh, how it all plays out, who ultimately gets in. And we also had uh, asked Susan Del Percio about this, but I do really just have to jump in with this question. What do you make of this victory? Uh, Vito Fisella, the next borough president of Staten Island, just have to just have to check you on that one, too. Yeah, I mean, look, this is sort of like a uh, candidacy that, you know, frankly, a lot of us didn't pay a ton of attention to. Um, you know, he's he's coming back after, you know, leaving Congress due to a scandal uh, more than a decade ago. And it showed really the influence of, of President, uh, former President Donald Trump in Staten Island, um, you know, who endorsed Vito Fisella at the last minute in the primary. He won the primary. Democrats uh, contested as much as they could. The general election spent a lot of money, a lot more money than he did. Um, but ultimately he won, you know, by a large margin. Um, and he got up in his victory speech and, and thanked uh, Trump. So it kind of shows that, you know, the Trump wing of the Republican Party still is very influential, at least in, at least on Staten Island. I wish we had more time because I love hearing you talk about this stuff. But Aaron Durkin, where can people find out about you and your reporting for Politico New York? 
Yeah, so you can look at uh, the Politico New York website, which is politico.com slash state slash New York. Um, or you can uh, sign up for Playbook, which is our uh, daily newsletter five days a week. Uh, if you just Google New York Playbook, that's probably the easiest way. And uh, definitely subscribe. Wonderful. Aaron Durkin of Politico. Thanks so much for joining us here on Driving Forces. Really appreciate your insight as always. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks, Aaron. So we're now opening up the phone lines. Please give us a call. This is our favorite part. 212-209-2877. We want to hear from you. Did you vote? If not, why? Did you care about the ballot proposals, which we I forgot to mention earlier? And if you followed us when we talked about this on an earlier show, of those five proposals, number one was rejected. The other four, uh, I believe, uh, Celeste had passed. Uh, I got to check my numbers on that. But I know the first one, which was that constitutional amendment regarding redistricting that had like eight components, went down. So uh, I'm curious how you felt about that. What mattered most to you this election season? Give us a call at 212-209-2877. Once again, that's 212-209-2877. And I believe, uh, Celeste, that we already have a caller on the line. Okay, great. Don't forget to keep calling in if you are on hold. Stay with us. 212-209-2877. 212-209-2877. We are going to go to the phones. WBAI, you're on the air. What's your name and where are you calling from? Am I on? That's you. <laughs> you know, I was put on about a minute ago before you guys went into the spiel. You asked me, what or how did I feel? And then you went into this whole spiel with this whole thing and then started all over again. Okay, we're going to answer phone calls. You had already had somebody on the line. Uh, you answered part of my first question, but I ask if you'd be possible if you could check for a lot of people who don't have a computer or a cell phone, only have the land, landline there, uh, who don't really get a report on the, uh, on the ballot questions. I understand what happened with number one. It was going down. But there were also two other propositions. I believe uh, the... Um, Extended voting and the uh, no uh, no uh, um, uh, uh, no requirement absentee request. Uh, uh, basically, in other words, you don't have to be sick. Uh, no excuse. Uh, absentee ballots were going right. too. So if you could check that. The other thing is, I was wondering. Um, I don't know if Susan is still there. Um, I was wondering if Virginia voters are aware of the uh, particular pickle they put themselves into, women especially. Because although they piled on to the Senate, the Senate is 2119, and there is one Democrat there that votes uh, on conservative issues, especially on abortion, um, who's uh, been known for that. So with the lieutenant governor and a, um, uh, a governor, uh, both Republicans now, having control of the Assembly and now the Senate having the 2020 thing kind of go along um, with one Democrat um, going along on these conservative issues, especially abortion, they're in for a hell of a, a hell of time because this man is, is definitely of the uh, kind of real conservative uh, ilk there on that thing. 
Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate your call. And yeah, that's really important. And I actually am super glad that you brought that up. There were definitely uh, some, I believe it was five, right? Five ballot proposals that were uh, up before voters. Uh, Not all of them succeeded. Uh, Some people may not even have noticed them. We have talked about them here on the program, but some people may not have voted for them. Uh, But yeah, so I think, Jeff, you had put together a little rundown of what happened with those ballots. But I think you are right, caller. The first one, uh, which was a super ultra multi-part one, uh, did not go through. And that pitted and that pitted a number of good government groups against each other, you know, which was interesting to see where groups like Citizens Union that had opposed it, um, you know, and, and also it was very divisive between Democrats and Republicans. Republicans really worked hard to defeat that first proposal and it went down uh, as well. I believe we have uh, uh, several other callers. We're going to get to the next call right now. Welcome to WBAI. You are on the air. What's your name and what's on your mind today? Hi, you're on the air. Not yet. Okay. Oh, we thought we had a call. Sorry about that, folks. <laughs> oh, okay, um, sorry about that. But if you do want to call in 212-209-2877 is the number to call. 212-209-2877. Very curious to hear if you voted, what motivated you to go out to the polls, no matter who you voted for? What made you uh, send in your ballot or stand in line? or maybe not stand in line at your polling place, 212-209-2877. And if you chose not to vote, why did you not vote? Was it um, too complicated, too time-consuming, too boring? You felt like you already knew who was going to win. What was going on in your mind uh, in the run-up to the election and on Election Day? 212-209-2877. And I'm very curious if any of our listeners are in Nassau or Suffolk. We'd love to hear from you about why you feel, uh, you know, we had a red wave on Long Island, what, what issues you felt mattered. You know, I've been reading stories about how bail reform was a key, uh, a key, uh, controversial measure. In, or, or uh, bail reform was something that motivated voters to go to the polls to oust the Democratic uh, candidates there. So we're going to get to the next caller on the line. Welcome to WBAI. You are on the air. What's your name and what is on your mind? I am Greg Coyne from a distant foreign land called New Jersey. <laughs> My hometown. What's going on, Greg? Actually, I live in Hewitt, which was after, uh, named after a Democratic mayor from New York about 120 years ago. He's a progressive and a good guy. Well, a dose of reality, if you will. Where I live in northwestern New Jersey, it was three to one Republican at the polls. People were angry because of all the things that they're whipped up by Fox News and Newsmax and all the superb propaganda network that the enemy has put up for the last 20 or 30 years. They're really good at what they do. They don't talk about 150 different issues they pick two or three in the campaign and they hammer at it for six months before the election over and over and over again kind of the Goebbels uh you know that whole world and it works folks the, the signs we saw in our rural suburban town the last couple of days had enough vote republican and you know murphy should have won by four or five hundred thousand votes there's a million more democratic voters in new jersey He only won by a couple tens of thousands. This is a bellwether for next year. I mean, 
New Jersey looks a lot more like the rest of the country than New York City, if you will, demographically. If I'm a sitting congressperson in the Midwest or in the South, Democrat, I'm shaking right now. And quite frankly, this is opening the door for Trump again, folks. I hate to say it. So many people at the polling the polling places yesterday, and I'm a Democratic committeeman here, thankless thing that we do here, but they're saying, they're so convinced, millions of people are convinced that if the Republicans win, it's just, if the Democrats win, it was stolen. I've heard this so many times. And quite frankly, Nancy Pelosi should be replaced. She's such a terrible leader for all these years. There's no unity of action amongst our congressional people. There's no strength, if you will. And Chuck Schumer, he gets beat by Mitch McConnell every day. I mean, give me LBJ a Senate Majority Leader. Maybe you actually beat these bums once in a while. <laughs> serious stuff. I'm very serious, folks. I'm, very, I'm 64 years old. I can't believe what I'm seeing before my eyes here. And, okay, we, we had a good victory in Boston with a lady who got in, who's a superb person, but it's few and far between. I mean, New Jersey, the assembly races, they, they Republicans killed us. Local races, they killed us. What did you make of the uh, the toppling of the uh, the Senate leader there by the uh, the uh, commercial truck driver gentleman? What did you think that of that? Was absolutely wonderful. Mr. Sweeney is a far right Democrat, part of what's called the North Cross machine, which runs New Jersey. He's a Democrat, but he backed Chris Christie, and he was Donald Trump's insurance broker. No conflicts there. That's good, actually. I hate to say it. He's horrible. He's a horrible person. The teachers union tried to push him out three years ago. They, the Republicans succeeded where we didn't in the primary. Okay, well, That's thank you. Please, please forgive me, but this is we have a lot of work to do in the next two years. Oh no, we always we always thank you for your call. I'm glad to hear uh, from people in New Jersey as well. We always wish we had more time, but we are coming up to the top of the hour, so we do want to thank uh, you, our listeners, of course, and our callers today. Also, like to thank our guests Susan Del Percio and Aaron Durkin for sharing their insight into this week's elections. Always thank you to Reggie Johnson who makes this show happen every week as our engineer board op and um, of course we want to thank again you our listeners uh, always appreciate your support not only through the calls but through your support for the station which is commercial free non-corporate and with that Jeff what do you have coming up this weekend well this Sunday on WBAI's City Watch David Brand will be hosting he'll be diving in more into the local elections here in New York City and get the latest takeaways from former candidate for office and journalist Ross Barkin and progressive strategist Trip Yang, the two of his three guests. And by the way, in two weeks, if all goes still according to plan, I'm crossing my fingers, Sunday, November 14th, 10 a.m. on that Sunday, I will be hosting a special on City Watch offering some amazing premium gifts. And my two guests, are you ready for this, Celeste? I'm I've got standing by. actress... Actress Tova Felchu and sexologist Dr. Ruth Westheimer. Whoa. You're gonna wanna hear you're gonna wanna hear this show on the 14th. And Celeste and I, by the way, will be back here next Thursday on Veterans Day, Celeste. Yeah, absolutely. So we want to thank everybody one more time for listening to today's edition of Driving Forces. Remember, we upload every edition of this program to SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Please subscribe and never miss a show. Don't forget also to check us out on Twitter and Facebook. For now, see you on the radio.